Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, which is coming right up, but first a few thoughts of my own. A great conference is about to take place in Paris on global warming, or as some people prefer to say, climate change. That isn't my issue. My issue is how much fun it would be to be there, not to attend anything, or to party in Paris, which is wonderful, but just to watch the people signaling virtue, people there to show that they are for climate. I love this expression, signaling virtue. It came out of the English magazine, The Spectator. And think about it. There are all sorts of people around signaling virtue. If you carry a religious book, you're signaling something. If you, uh, apparently, if you wear sandals and a beard, you're signaling something. I love the idea that there are these signals. You know, I only eat, I'm, I'm vegetarian, make a big fuss in a restaurant, signaling some kind of virtue. Think about it. And then go out and signal if you dare. I have a wonderful panel today. And I'm so glad to introduce them to them. My old friend, Brian Keane from Smart Power, also blogs at the Huffington Post. And a new guest, welcome, Siraj Hashmi. Is that right? Did I get that you right? Yeah, right. Have Siraj you had Hashmi. that name a long time? Or I, you I've, didn't? Had it, I've had it yeah, a few years. All right. Kind of, Siraj Hashmi <laughs> is with GVH Live. Tell us what GVH Live is. Uh, GVH Live is a millennial news source, and we cover news and politics as it applies to millennials. So this, you'll see me this, on the 2016 campaign trail. the idea that millennials are somehow different from us. Millennials are somewhat different from uh, the other generations. I would agree with that, but it, there well, are a lot of different... Nice of you to, to leave those precincts and join us in the more general world. Uh, Oh, I, I hope you don't find it a disconcerting experience. I do like the mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very glad to have on the broadcast, uh, on the broadcast Paul Brandis, who is the author of this book. Uh, I think we've got it up on the screen, Under This Roof, The White House and the Presidency. Paul, what is the book about? Well, there are a lot of books about the White House and a lot of books about the presidents and the issues. I decided to add a third layer on top of that, Llewellyn, make it about the growth of the building itself, which sort of mirrors the growth of the country. So I talk about the presidents, some of the stories they're involved with, but also the technology that they brought to the White House and how it kind of mirrored the growth of the country. How much, how much access did you have to all that subterranean development we saw in the last five years where there was a lot of excavation and nobody seemed to know what was going on? Obviously to do with national security issues. Well, they claimed it was a big expansion of the heating and the air cooling thing. The rest of us know what it really was. In fact, people off the record will tell you it was really just an expansion of sort of the uh, situation room complex and evacuation room holding areas, what we've been told. Of course, nobody will ever confirm that, but that's exactly what it is. Um, you cover the White House for a rather unique product that you have developed, which is, tell us about it. Well, West Wing Reports is my own company. I started this after several years working at NBC. I worked on Wall Street for a long time. I know so you were in Moscow. And I was. Moscow and Wall Street, these are rather dichot dichotomous. They are. And I decided back in 2008 that, that, look, the news business is changing dramatically. It's being disrupted. I'm going to start working for myself and distributing things to sort of television and radio clients across the U.S., overseas. I have the biggest Twitter account in the entire White House press corps. 
So, what sort of things would we find on your Twitter account? Well, you'll find the president's daily schedule. You'll find news conferences that we go to. You do, I do a thing called On This Day, where I talk about presidential history, which is really the nexus foundation, rather, for the book, in fact. So uh, a bunch good. of different things. Well, that's very interesting. You, you'd say that, you know, that there's something very awe-inspiring about the White House. I, I want to tell you that although I've been going to the White House since 1966, the building that affects me is the Capitol. I think that is a marvelous building and redolent with history, of course, much more than this old mansion which has expanded and expanded. It's just the way it strikes me personally. I never get the sort of goosebumps going into the White House that I do at the Capitol. Well, they're both they're both interesting in, in to, to your point. But one thing about the White House, people think that it's really kind of a, you know, we're a very young country, but uh, did you know? The presidents have actually lived in the White House longer than kings and queens in Buckingham Palace. It's oh, true. Buckingham Palace is it's only eighteen. It only yeah. goes to eighteen thirty-seven. Yeah, it's reasonably recent. As is the House of Parliament. Presidents have lived in the White House longer than emperors in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. Even longer than the current Russian government has been in the Kremlin. It's only nineteen eighteen when the Russians moved back from Saint Petersburg. So the White House is actually, in terms of head of state living there, is quite an old building. That's just fascinating from so many different angles. That's fascinating. Well, good luck with the bulk. But to uh, think about millennials and the White House, you know that the average college dorm room today uses more energy than the White House did through all of World War I. Uh, and that is because of these kids these days. <laughs> but no, because quite frankly, you go into a college dorm room, that place is wired for everything. The right. TVs are on, the computers are on, the cell phones are charged in, everything's lit up. And you know, you turn off your flat screen TV in your dorm room, that TV is still on. So what's happening is all this energy is being used by, quite frankly, a generation that actually understands that climate change is a real problem. They want to be part of the solution. They actually just don't know how to just yet. Yeah, Got to get them to Paris. And my alma mater, Dickinson College, would probably, uh, they actually go to the, ex you know, over, over beyond to try to come, you know, come to grips with climate change. But yes, with, uh, with regards to millennials being aware of what they're putting out into the environment, I think it's, uh, they wouldn't really know that fact. That was fascinating. That was fascinating. They don't know that? I don't think many millennials would know that. I think they well, just know about carbon emissions. There is a tendency, you're talking about virtue, and you know, young people tend to right. be more inclined to, to, to want to be virtuous in and that sense, not necessarily in other senses. And millennials wear their causes on their sleeve like no one else. Yeah, well, uh, I would think part of it is not about being virtuous as much as being recognized. And so that's why people uh, wear But these are people who, who, you know, th say, take all the coal plants out, stop this, don't have that. Uh, and yet they're very large users. Uh, ironically, one of the most polluting things you can do is fly in a jet airplane because it leaves its effluent right up there, right. close to close where you don't want it. Are we going to get into a discussion about chemtrails? Uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people will be getting on airplanes to go to Paris to do something about this problem. Exactly. Are you going to Paris to do something about this so problem? Gonna, I think I'm going to be more virtuous and stay here. But uh, I'll tell you this. I do think actually Paris has a, a value. Um, oh, I think it does too. It is a global recognition. It is exactly. akin, in my opinion, it is akin to the nuclear test ban treaty. Exactly the right. world has recognized the problem. Paul, what do you think? Well, I think that's true, and we were talking just uh, offline about how the biggest corporations in the United States are on board with this. Even the most conservative 
institution in this country is on board. That's the Department of Defense, which recognizes well, climate. Well, it's been on board quite a while. It's been on board for quite a while. The Department of Defense recognizes climate change as a true national security threat. That's right. And through DARPA, they're driving all kinds of changes that traditionally ripple through the economy, roll up solar panels, for example, that make it easier for troops in the field, a green fleet, airplanes that can fly on things like Jatropha and other biofuels. Roll up solar amazing. panels are something of interest yeah. to me because I come from Africa and yeah. where we have tremendous electric shortages, uh, particularly in my homeland of now called Zimbabwe, it was called Rhodesia, um, because there's, no, there's been a bad rainfall in the hydroelectric dam on the Zambezi, the, the yep. river which feeds electricity to Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, is not producing very much, and people are in terrible state. They need some quick fix, and there's very little quick fix in electric. Well, there, there's no know, there's no sort of quick rush in. You know, you can bring in a diesel generator, but that's right, not going right. to take care of a nation. But I think what it really comes down to is how everybody can be part of this climate solution. So what's interesting with Paris, it's going to be the big governments deciding kind of what they're going to do. And what we really should be talking about as well is actually every little piece that we can all do. They're so solar actually, does matter. But they're actually Energy made efficiency those decisions matter. already. Fingers. International, right. so, I mean, this is international China, United meetings States. are done by the staff before the meeting. Well, it was well, done when the Premier of China came ahead. over here. Well, yeah, this climate summit or this climate conference, it directly impacts even the civil war in Syria because there, there have been a number of studies that have looked at how climate change has impacted that region and has caused uh, both agriculture and economic implications that have pretty much wiped out the crops and causing those rural, lower income people who are trying to find jobs can't find anything. That's kind of where the Syrian uprising, uh, a lot of people theorize that that's kind of where it took place. And that's where you see all the bloodshed well, today true. and yeah. the vacuum that's that's been caused uh, by you know, the whole Iraq region to the world. It won't be very habitable if it goes on the way it is. Well, the, whole Arab, the whole Arab Spring began in Tunisia when food, when the uh, price of bread soared. That's exactly what happened. So to his point, uh, that, that that's exactly what's happened. So are you and, saying and we need more pyramids to store the grain? Is that what well, you're suggesting? Is that? <laughs> we, we certainly, we certainly it, I think Good it's thing. very timely. Uh, it's not going to solve the problem because that everybody's going to agree in Paris, but it is, it's not the end of the problem. It's the it's the, of, it's the beginning of the solution, though, and part of that solution actually is that we're having this conversation right here. This is pretty exciting that, in fact, in the United States, it's now considered normal to be talking about but climate change. But it's rather ironic that the, 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 the greatest source of non-polluting electricity comes of nuclear power plants, and we're closing them down because of the economics of burning natural gas, which is a pollutant <laughs> right. uh, in that sense. So mm -hmm. you've got these, these complex issues uh, at work there. Uh, we could take a station break. Uh, this is uh, Llewellyn King at White House Chronicle. This break is primarily for the benefit of our listeners on Sirius XM Radio, the POTUS channel, channel 124. I am joined here at White House Chronicle by Brian Keane of Smart Power, clearly has a vested interest in these <laughs> issues, uh, by Siraj Hashmi, who does work, and where I met him was at Sirius XM, but he is actually the bureau chief of GVH Live, which is a channel dedicated to the concerns, interests, and coverage of millennials. And our author of the day, we don't actually have authors of the day, but you're our well, author you today, yeah. is Paul Brandis, who is a uh, an exceptional journalist with a great history in Wall Street, uh, was with NBC in Moscow, but 
has for several years been at the White House, uh, where he has the most extensive blog, about a quarter of a, not blog, uh, uh, what do you call Twitter it, a tweet? Account. Twitter. Twitter accounts, Twitter account. about Twitter. a quarter of a million of them. I have about five followers, which is about enough, really. Good number. Good number. And he has right. a new book uh, of interest to anybody interested in politics in the White House under this roof, the White House and the presidency. This program can be seen on 200 television stations here in the U.S. and around the globe. It can be seen on the English language stations, the Voice of America, and the audio is available as it is on Sirius XM radio on uh, Voice of America around the globe. Uh, we've had the debates. Debates. They're not as exciting as they were. Uh, something structurally is wrong, I think. Do you think there's something structurally wrong with the debates? Well, I think the thing that's structurally wrong is that there are too many people in the debates. I mean, it's hard to they have. They aren't a, actually debates, are they? They're it's all a glorified can't have conferences. You can't have 10 people there talking. Paul, they're extended, extruded press conferences. Correct, exactly. They're not debates. No, they're not debates. That's not the, the word is wrong. They're not debates. It's people, joint appearances. It's people talking. It's people reciting their, their poll-tested talking points and trying to get away with it. Right. No. Except that if somebody how asks a question that they don't Paul? anticipate, they Paul, get do you have do you have an idea of how you would change that? Well, the idea that I would have is I think you know the Fox debate the other night I thought was actually pretty good because they gave people more time to talk. They actually engaged with each other, which I didn't really see in the prior debate. My idea would be to have a left wing journalist. Uh, moderate the Republican debate and have a right-wing journalist moderate the Democratic debate, and then you'd really see some interesting questions and answers. That's and, my and Of course, it'll never happen. Those, those of us who declare that we have no allegiance to any political point of view, we would be excluded, yes? Uh, well, well, I do think... Would you be allowed to do it, or would you exclude yourself? Well, there are people Because who, of your you know, innate objectivity. Or acquired objective. Well, some people, right-wing nuts, think I'm on the left, and left-wing nuts think I'm on the right. So when I irritate both sides, I'm doing pretty good. I think that's my. That's but maybe the job. question actually is not the, is the word is not journalist. So we should well, have conservative commentators and liberal commentators. I just emphasize there are nuts on both sides. By saying that, indubitably. Yeah. So. I have proposed in a column I've written, which is making its way around the newspapers of America, that. Maybe we should look at question time in the House of Commons. And what people don't know is that the very popular question time that's carried on C-SPAN is that the early questions, the Prime Minister has knowledge of them. He couldn't cover any topic that anybody asked him about, which is what we're asking. And it's humiliating. You know, if people can't remember a name, they look like as though they're stupid. Um, in which if they had some knowledge of the question, they would be well prepared on that question and as in the House of Commons, the follow-up questions are not known. They are not rehearsed, nor are the comments, which sometimes are outrageous. I mean, one of my favorites is, sit down, you fat-faced twit. <laughs> and people think these debates are that great. <laughs> they have, I, love, I love watching the prime yeah, they questions. Are they're, but they're but there's a structure there of known questions and follow-ups that aren't known. And I think this would make them more interesting uh, have the journalists ask the question. Of course, there'll be hyena-like howls from my journalistic colleagues who say, you're demoting us, you're feeding questions, that's a no-no. But it might improve things. The other way I've thought of doing it is have a moderator who is just a moderator. 
timekeeper, uh, um, not engaging, not asking questions, say, enough of that question, uh, next chair, that might help. Anyway. Well, you know, during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln required Perrier at 64 degrees, and Douglas wanted and made sure that nobody could know he took a bathroom break. So I think this is playing out the same way. The reality is that what's happened is that we should be having debates just like you discussed. The I also, Lincoln -Douglas I also think debates. they should be allowed to sit down. There's something sort of like they're standing there. They are auditioning for a job, but they look extraordinarily uncomfortable, I think. And I, I don't think that's But that's isn't that part good. of the, what, that's what we want to no, know? No, that's can part they, of the journalistic fun of it. That's not part of eliciting their opinion to see who is qualified for the most important job on earth. Well, I don't know. You know, you, you got to stand there for three hours and answer questions and complain about it. I don't know if you can actually go head to head with Putin. I mean, it is kind of funny. It's well, like, wow. That, well, that's what I think you want to find out. You want to find how fast on their feet they are, exactly. whether they have a certain cunning, which is needed in international relations. You know, maybe they should structure it like, you know, the college football playoffs. They should they go head-to-head, -head, have more relaxed setting, and really kind of let public polling dictate well, who moves on to the next round. This, this is, kind of, it already feels like American Idol as it is. It, it does <laughs> feel like that in some ways, but, but if you minimize it to maybe like two... Uh, maybe a candidate going head to head with another one. You might actually have a little bit more relaxed discussion. Actually, you might you know, get to feel. It's not going to change this round, isn't it, for, for next year? But it might. Four years out, I think people will be looking at new and better structures for debate. Certainly, it's a good thing for them to debate. It's a little more difficult, I think, when one party feels as many candidates as the Republicans have. Um, it makes it very difficult to have any kind of uh, elicitation of that. Well, they're just too unwieldy, and again, to my earlier point, there's just too many people involved. I mean, you're not really going to learn a lot about a candidate watching him. You know, they'll get four or five, six minutes in two hours to talk. How much are you really going to learn? Again, these are, these are, these are television products, essentially, and it's important to remember that. It's really not a serious venue for talking about the issues but, of so the day. So how about the Maddow... Uh, Forum that she had. I actually thought a couple of weeks ago, I thought that was interesting, where she actually had the candidates, the Democratic candidates, sit down with her, sit down in the chair as you discussed, and actually just have this discussion. Well, and she's then able the next to do candidate. That because came. there are only three candidates in the well, Democratic well, yeah. field. Well, yeah, but you could still take all 10 and probably do it in multi yeah. different nights. But outside yeah. of the actual structure of it, I think, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, uh, on their website, gvhlive.com, I've interviewed many millennials who actually want to hear more about the issues that pertain to them. Because if you know going forward in this in this general election, millennials are going to be one of the largest voting blocks uh, to go to the polls, and so if they're not, if they don't feel like I, their I, issues are being heard do, or being do we, addressed, do we learn anything about candidates before they're elected? We learn some of their foibles, some of their dishonesty, some of their resume enhancement, but do we know them as people? And this brings me to you, Paul. In doing this book, what did you find out that was totally surprising about some of the people who have occupied the highest office in the land? Well, it's all changed. The whole dynamic is different because of television, which has really changed the entire way that campaigns are run. I mean, for example, you could argue that uh, candidates in the past, would Lincoln have been elected in the television age? He was a very unsightly man. Would Franklin Roosevelt, crippled in a wheelchair, have been elected? You know, people pay attention to how a candidate looks, how they sound, and 
people might not have given them the support that they got back then when Roosevelt was only on the radio and Lincoln, of course, was only in the newspapers and debates. So it's really interesting. So television has changed the dynamic completely. You have guys now with the blow-dried hair and everything. That really came in with John F. Kennedy. Dwight Eisenhower did a fair amount of television, but he resisted it. He didn't like it. He wanted to stick to the old-fashioned ways. Kennedy came in, changed the rules completely, and since then, everybody, of course, with the makeup and the, the hair and the quick, pithy lines and the jabs and this and that. So it's really changed, and in a way, you could argue that it's really degraded process, but that's a reflection of the times we live in. But to we watch that, television. To build on that then, isn't social media social kind of the media. next step to that, which is Trump is ahead because he's a really good at he's really good at Twitter. And like he he is pithy with his characters and boom, he gets the word out. Sarah Palin four years ago or four years ago, same thing. It's like they can actually move numbers through Twitter. Social well, media is giving the day, them the platform. At the end of the day though, the Palin case is interesting because she proved quite quickly uh, to be something of a lightweight. People kind of looked at her. I personally thought I was in Minneapolis for that convention. I thought she was really, I thought she was a really attractive candidate right up to the point where she opened her mouth. And then I realized that this is just not a very smart woman. And over time, that comes out. When it came television, out, I'm not going to let you host the next debate. Television. <laughs> well, there are a lot of Republicans who well, agree with that now too. That. I mean, she was, she was not, she was not exactly. Uh, she was not. There exactly are a lot of questions that if these were pre-assembled, some of which would be, uh, um, you know, they would showboat it, but. You know, yeah. I like to know what books people read, what their historical view of things is. Um, and we're not getting that in anything. And in fact, we are journalism. We're not actually doing journalism. We're writing what people said, which is not the same thing, uh, or I don't think it is. And it's very hard not to in this campaign. I mean, it is very newsworthy, and certainly people want to know what Trump said. Whether what it contributes to the future governance you know, of the nation is far from clear. Well, maybe part of that is, I'm sorry, is just how journalism has changed so much, not just because of television, but now because of social media. If you watch this movie, Truth, about the Dan Rather, um, Mary Mapes situation with, in 2004 when they were investigating right. Bush, what they missed was that, in fact, even though they were investigative journalists doing a story, they didn't understand that there are millions of people out there in their basements on their computers investigating them. And uh, they didn't understand that was happening. Uh, talking about investigative journalism, the networks after Vietnam and yep. uh, many fights uh, basically gave up doing documentaries. The old-fashioned CBS documentary died. Um, it went to Frontline, but less so. And there are some very good things on Frontline, but they're occasional, they're not, and they're not financed in the way that the networks could. Uh, but we are seeing a whole lot of new television production from new players, but they're not going for the newsy stuff, which is controversial. Uh, what do you think of that, Paul? Well, I think that's true because it's, it costs a lot of money to do investigative journalism. It takes a lot of time. And news executives now who work for big corporations, they look at stories in terms of how much time and how much money it costs to produce a story. And they look at stories in terms of just you know, again, how much does it cost? So that ultimately drives down the quality. There becomes sort of a quantity over quality kind of thing. Yeah, the old days of the Edward R. Murrow harvest of sham, that was 50 years ago. Nobody is doing that now. It's way too much money. I mean, the whole journalism business, the trend is 
that hard, I just read an interesting study about this, I think it was Brookings the other day, that hard news is on the way out for some of the reasons that we just mentioned, and it's all now shifting towards opinion and analysis, right. not the traditional form of objective journalism that we grew up in. So everything has changed, but that is what the marketplace is saying what people want. It's a, a lot of it actually has to do with millennials being on the rise and taking over social media because you know you you, you, you say one thing that's somewhat unique on Twitter that gets re, that gets retweeted thousands upon thousands of times like without any, any without without, without any, any intention editing I mean, or or right. or right. checking on its veracity someone right. living yeah, in their parents fact. basement could have you know 500,000 followers. But that exa that's exactly exact the right point. It goes it's right to it's God's point. gift to disinformation, isn't it? Well, what happens is that so the serious news organizations, the kind of the mainstream news, actually is a little cowed by this because, in fact, they're there trying to do stories, or if they want to do a story, they have to factor in that thousands of people will be investigating not just their facts, but their journalists and their histories. And then those become lawyers that have to actually deal with it. Sometimes this stuff. all you need to do in this business is just be bold enough. Yep. Not, and all you need is a computer and, and really the guts to go out and report what everybody else is not do, not saying or reporting on. All and you need to say is that the pyramids were, store, were for grain storage <laughs> and people will believe it though. No, it's like, wow, it's amazing. You don't have to that, And that's, one, what, that's what this election has well, become. One, right. Well, one reason mm -hmm. why I think you were talking about England a little while ago, uh, you know, this whole parliamentary system, there's just a Canadian election that was over and done with in about two months. And if we had kind of a compressed yeah. election like that here, uh, Donald Trump would be measuring the drapes in the Oval Office right now. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, Hang on a second. It's, a, it's, not, it's not a bad thing that we have these long, drawn-out campaigns because all the idiocy, like grains in the pyramids, it all comes out, but it takes time to do that. Well, that's interesting. The other thing, though, you have in a parliamentary system, you tend to have candidates. And remember, that you don't, you're voting for a party. Right. Uh, you're not voting for the prime right. minister. Uh, but the people running tend to be people who've been in public life. They've been in the parliament. They are known. They are known quantities. Uh, this is not true in the U.S. Of our candidates running today, uh, very few of them have been in Congress or are now in Congress. We don't know them as public figures. We have not heard of them. They have not presided over hearings, etc. Uh, and that's a big difference. So we really need, I, I'm with you, we need this long period to try to find out something about them. But I think it's a two-edged sword because it also disinclines people well, to go through it. You've got to have, you know, a s steel in your soul to want to go through nearly two years of campaigning, hard physical, intellectual, and emotional work. Despite the fact that the campaign season is so long, most people don't start paying attention until a few months out before the general that's election. Right. And that's, that's, that's the right. crux of the problem. Despite the fact that we have a social media that's you know, beyond any of us, uh, we, we can't get the information. I mean, you could bring a camel to a well, but you can't get them to drink. But I, just to your earlier point, I think actually it's always been about people who are in the public eye. And so, you know, Ronald Reagan, I get he was governor of California, but he's governor of California because he was a famous actor. And then he became president. Ike, General Eisenhower, was in the public eye and became commander-in-chief. Trump is actually just in that same category. It happens to be a different type of TV show, but it's the same category. So, like, this is kind of American politics. And uh, to Paul's point, I do like, actually, I do agree that, in fact, the longer the schedule, 
the more chance we have of betting people and actually just kind of seeing how they're how they do with the shelf life talking about the way we live now paul can you get your book on kindle uh it's available everywhere books are sold uh, uh nice. good I will kindle, check it's it an amazon bestseller i, uh, I have uh, yeah i've conceded to the times i read books on kindle <laughs> yep primarily because it's portable and they talk, still make them on paper now uh, I, I just had to review a book uh, on paper. It hadn't got to Kindle yet. And I was out of the habit of reading and the light, and I couldn't change the size. Although I feel I'm betraying the ancient bookmaking art, which I know something about. That is our program for today. Signal whatever you're doing. It's good fun. And if you get to go to Paris, call me, and I'll come over and show you a few spots. Until then, next week, actually. All the best. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>